0: I need to pray for the pharaohs that they make it home. Deb doesn't want to leave Maine. When I left, she was singing with Jim Cole, who's a Christian uh, singer-songwriter, has lots of CDs, sounds a lot like James Taylor. And uh, uh, somebody, he was uh, at the reception uh, for the uh, Betty Parks. He started playing the guitar, and they started singing James Taylor songs. And... uh, Somebody came up and asked him to, to sing one of his songs. And he said, well, I'm kind of in a James Taylor groove. And besides, I got Carly Simon here singing with me, who was dad. And so she was over the moon. And I told Jed, you're never coming home. So and pray for them. The, uh, and of course, Jed just kind of like, hi, oh, you know. So it was a lot of fun. We're in one of the difficult passages of the Bible today. it be more difficult if I trip. There we go. And uh, this is where everybody stops. When you read Revelation, you get to here and they quit. Because chapter 1 was the introduction and it was all about Jesus. And then chapters 2 and 3 were the seven letters to the seven churches. And we got most of that. And then four and five, again, it's about Jesus and the Lamb who's on the throne and worship in heaven. And now we get to the weird stuff. And this is where everybody stops, where all the images come at you, just piled one on top of another. And uh, so that's where we are. And of course, this opens Revelation 6 with a famous uh, description of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so read with me. We're going to read the entire chapter. And so please listen carefully uh, as this is the Word of God. Read along in your Bibles or uh, a little bit harder. It's a long passage, so it's sort of split up in your outline. So it'll probably be easier to read along in your Bibles this morning. Revelation chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. And for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, So sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold... There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, and the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Thank you again for giving us your word and making us your people. As we look at this vision of evil in the world and the cries of the martyrs and the end of everything, overwhelm us as you overwhelm John. Remind us of what this is all about, Lord. Help us to see that Jesus is judge as well as savior. And do this for each of us this morning. In the majestic name of Jesus we pray, amen. Now, the experience of Jesus' disciples shows us that we get into the Bible's teachings about the things to come, it's easier to ask the wrong question than the right one, because we want to ask when, and Jesus is more interested in answering why. If you remember when his disciples were uh, awed by the architecture of Herod's temple, Jesus brought their wide-eyed wonder down to earth with this prediction, Matthew 24. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? And Jesus' answer must have frustrated the disciples' desire for a clear-cut calendar. He spoke of terrifying trends for the rest of that chapter that are not signs of the end but only symptoms of the status quo. And he gave them clues about the destruction of Jerusalem and his own coming at the end of the age. But regarding his coming, he says, Matthew 24, All the way down in verse 36, he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As soon as somebody starts to tell you dates and times, that ought to be a huge red flag. That would be a sign of a false prophet. In fact, most of Jesus' answers to these types of questions were actually very practical uh, answers. He was encouraging them and us to endure and to share the gospel. In fact, in that chapter in Matthew 24, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. If you remember again after his resurrection, we see him with the disciples at the beginning of the book of Acts. And again, the disciples ask him the when question. Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So at least in these two occasions, the disciples ask Jesus when, and he says, I'm not going to tell you. Go tell people about me. Which doesn't actually answer their question. He doesn't answer. He says, it's not for you to know. And again, he answers by saying that the when doesn't really matter, but that the question that matters is why. And the why answer is all tied up with the church taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, here in Revelation 6, we find ourselves reading this strange chapter and struggling with wanting to know when. When is all this going to happen? And instead of answering our question, this prolonged process of uh, preparing to unroll the scroll. And remember, at this point, Jesus is just taking the seals off the scroll. The scroll hasn't been unrolled yet. And we only got through six of the seals, there's seven. We won't get that one until chapter eight. But instead of answering our questions, this process of unrolling, uh, preparing to unroll the scroll, gives us a series of portraits to help answer the question, why? Why, if the Lamb has conquered, as we saw in chapter 5, does the world continue to be a place of evil, violence, and misery? And the breaking of the scroll seals is preparation to disclose the contents of the scroll. And this measured pace by which the Lamb breaks the scrolls Each accompanied with a new vision builds the suspense and anticipation for all those who are the hearers of Revelation. Yet they also prepare us to understand the visions that John will see when the seventh scroll is finally broken, the seventh seal on the scroll is finally broken and the scroll is unrolled. So today we're in Revelation chapter 6. And we are going to start with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I wore my only tie that has a horse on it. So this is General Grant and Cincinnati. And we start with verses one through eight and the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so the people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, as the Lamb breaks the uh, first four seals, the four living creatures, one after another, who, if you remember from chapters 4 and 5, were giving praise to God and were around the throne uh, of the Lord, they are now uh, issue this thunderous command to come. And responding to the summons of the four living creatures are four horses with riders. Now, you have to get the imagery out of your head that the four horsemen sort of ride out together. It's not like that. It's one after the other. One comes out, then the other, then the other, and finally the fourth one. In each case, the horse and its color appear first, and then its rider and his significance. And the colors of the four horses somewhat correspond with the horses of the four chariots in the book of Zechariah, chapter 6. Remember, the key to understanding Revelation is to know the Old Testament. Because much of this book and much of this chapter is pulled from various places in the Old Testament, particularly from the prophets. But in Zechariah 6, we read, again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots, came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. And I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. Then after that, the Uh, horses of the four chariots were sent out to the four corners of the earth to bring judgment on the nations that had oppressed the people of God. And in the same manner, John sees four horses and four riders sent out by the Lamb to wreak havoc on his enemies. This is a chapter ultimately about judgment. We've had five chapters about salvation, and particularly the last two. The lamb who was slain to save his people from his sins. But now we find out that the lamb not only brings salvation for those who love him, but judgment for those who don't. And so these first four seals show us that the instruments the Lord uses to judge those who oppose uh, oppose his rule and oppress his church... And so let's start with the first seal and the rider on the white horse. I'm not going to fill in the blank. I'm going to have to get it as we go. It was late, and I guess I was just feeling mean. (laughs) But as the lamb breaks the first seal, one of the living creatures shouts, Come, and John sees a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer And the beginning of desolation and destruction is loosed on the earth. Now, this is one of the most argued over passages of Scripture. Right here, just these couple verses. There are multiple interpretations of who this writer is. Some think the writer is Christ. And he's coming to conquer with the gospel because of this text's similarities with Revelation 19 where we definitively know that Christ comes as a conquering hero on a white horse. However, there are some serious problems with this view. The rider here is armed with a bow. In Revelation 19, Christ bears a sword. The rider here wears a crown. In Greek, the word is Stephanos, means the victor's crown, like a general would get after winning a battle. But in Revelation 19, Christ also wears a crown. But in Greek, it is a, a diademata, the many crowns of royalty, which is why we sing this hymn, crown him with many crowns. It comes uh, from Revelation 19. So that's the first interpretation. But there's problems, because it's not the same. And it's not specifically identified as Christ, where he is in other places. The second interpretation is because this writer isn't the same as Christ, but merely similar, it must be an imposter of Christ, and therefore it must be the Antichrist. And there are so many problems with this view, I hardly know where to start. First, it doesn't fit with the context of the rest of the book of Revelation and how it deals with the issue of the Antichrist. Second, it doesn't fit with the context of every other passage in the Bible that deals with the Antichrist. There's not that many. But mostly, I think it's a gross example of taking a particular interpretive view and forcing it upon the text. In this case, the view of pre-tribulation dispensational premillennialism say that fast. But one commentator I was reading, a well-known Bible teacher, somebody I greatly respect, blatantly denies all the other possibilities because he says they don't fit our interpretive view, which means he's imposing his interpretive view upon the text. We call that eisegesis, reading into the text what you want it to say as opposed to getting your view from the text or out of the text, which is exegesis. And I was very surprised when I read that. The clearest indication that the first writer is an instrument of Christ's judgment, but not Christ, nor the Antichrist, is the writer's association with the three writers who follow him since it's beyond dispute that they symbolize disasters that lead to the loss of life. And I don't think that the rider on the white horse is either Christ or the Antichrist, primarily because the text doesn't say so. What the text does say is that this rider came out conquering and to conquer. And so I think the rider of the white horse could well be called Conquest. Since he leads this cavalry of violence, famine, and death. And you just got the other three blanks for the other three horses. But if you think about it, since the nationalist and military aspirations of most of the world's rulers throughout history precipitate warfare and violence, which inevitably leads to a uh, scarcity of resources, such as food and medicine, which further leads to famine, epidemic disease, and death, all of which we see in the next three riders. Seal number two, the rider on the red horse The second rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. This rider follows the first rider with violence. Violence is the outcome of conquest. And when the first rider is unleashed, the inevitable result is seen in the second rider. Peace is removed from the earth And violence results. And this is seen in open warfare between peoples and in murder and mayhem among peoples. And the third seal is open the rider on the black horse. The third rider had a pair of scales in his hand, not a common weapon. We think. With the black horse comes economic injustice. Because we also have this strange quote thrown in here. It says, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. What is that all about? See, the third rider brings famine. And a mysterious voice reminds us that heaven is in control of this as well. The prices listed here are from 10 to 12 times the ordinary price for the same food at the time Revelation was written. Since a quart of wheat is considered uh, one day's supply of uh, uh, food for a soldier, and a denarius literally means one day's wage, the price quoted means that a worker's entire earnings would be spent on his allotment of bread. You get one day's uh, allotment of food for one day's wage. And there's nothing left over. And conquest and warfare would disrupt trade and transportation, making it harder for people to get food. And with famine, you would have a greatly reduced supply. Thus, inflation would drive up the cost to ridiculous heights. And therefore, the resulting scarcity would make life difficult for many but not for all, not for everyone, because the oil and wine would still be available. Who gets that? Not the average person. They spent all their money on bread. The oil and wine would go to the only people who could afford them, which would be rich people. And we see here that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, and there is built-in economic injustice. And, of course, these first three riders all set the stage for the fourth rider, the rider on the pale horse. The fourth rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Pale represents the uh, color, the pallor of death by disease. The word used for this color, translated pale, is elsewhere used for a light green or a pale green color. And of course, when people were ill, what do we say? They look a little green. And hence this horse exhibits the pale green color of death, which fits his rider who is death. And he follows the other riders and portrays the grisly effects of the first three. And then Hades follows to swallow up those who are killed by sword and famine and death by plague and by beasts. Now this passage draws upon God's threat of inescapable judgment, which we find many places in the Bible. One such place is in Ezekiel 14, which finishes, for thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast? You think it's by accident that the stuff we're told in Ezekiel matches what we're told in Revelation? If you divide the Old Testament from the New Testament, you won't understand either. It's one seamless book, even though it was written by many people over many years. And here we see Ezekiel lining up with Revelation. Of course, that same collection of deadly afflictions was predicted by Jesus himself to reassure his followers that the appearance of these afflictions doesn't mean an imminent end to the world. We go to Luke 21. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And as the horsemen are unleashed and catastrophic developments take place for the people of the earth, we have to remember that they're all under the sovereign hand of God. And to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Our Heavenly Father wants us to know that life on earth between the first and second comings of Christ is going to be very difficult at times. And the four horsemen of the apocalypse give us a vision of a world that is permeated by the effects of the fall. The horsemen are riding today throughout the world. Now, if the persecuted Christians of the first century church were all perplexed and dismayed by what was going on all around them, these words would come as a source of great comfort. God has not abandoned his people. Uh, Rome doesn't have the open hand. Uh, Satan is not thwarting the purposes of God. The world is in rebellion against God, and God will come against the world in judgment. And here in Revelation, the horsemen bring the judgments imposed by Christ upon the world to punish the wicked and to vindicate the people who trust in him. But the judgments are hard to understand. And so the scene shifts at verse 9 from the judgments on earth to a scene in heaven. And we shift to heaven where we see the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints... If you didn't get the four horsemen, conquest, violence, famine, and death. There's a lot more involved, but that's sort of the cliff notes. The prayers of the saints, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, so sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before... You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. We come to the breaking of the fifth seal, which opens a window on the rationale that lies behind the release of the four horsemen of the apocalypse to roam throughout the earth in judgment. And those who are martyred for the sake of the word of God and the testimony of Christ, cry out for justice. How long, O Lord? Echoing the lament of the Psalms. Phil looked it up for me uh, earlier this morning. That phrase, how long, O Lord, appears 18 times in the Psalms. One of them, Psalm 13 uh, verse 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 89, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? And this prayer for the vindication of his people is a prayer that we find very often in the Psalms and in the rest of the Bible. In fact, the wording is an allusion to another Psalm, Psalm 79. Psalm 79. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. It's a prayer based on the Lord's own promise to vindicate his people. Remember, the Lord asked in Luke 18 And will not God give justice to his elect? who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? The Lord has promised to judge the wicked, and it is no sin to pray that he will do what he promised. And the Lord's response to the martyr's appeal for justice is a gift and a strange word of hope. Just as the riders of judgment were given a crown, a sword, scales, and the authority to kill... So each of the martyrs is given a white robe symbolic of victory through faithfulness and through purity. And they're given a time of rest and they're told to wait for the justice which is now delayed. They must wait until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who are to be killed as they themselves had been. Well, here's a clear answer to the when question but it will only frustrate the date setters. The lamb will return to avenge his witnesses' blood just as soon as the very last martyr lays down his life, or her life. And we read elsewhere in the New Testament that this age must continue until all the elect have been called to faith in Christ. We saw that earlier in a passage from Matthew. It appears about eight times in the New Testament. But another way of making that point is what is said here. The age of martyrdom cannot end until the church's sufferings have at last reached their full measure. And although their vindication has to wait until the end of the age, the age in which the number of martyrs is filled to completion, the lament doesn't fall on deaf ears. The judgment of the four horses given in the first four seals is limited by God in the present. But in the future, as we'll see with the sixth seal, The wrath of the Lamb is given unlimited display at the climax of history. And therefore, the blood of the martyrs is not forgotten. The response of the Lord to this prayer comes immediately with the opening of the sixth seal and the unveiling of the wrath of the Lamb. Starting at verse 12, the wrath of the Lamb. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come, and who can stand? Here the breaking of the sixth seal provides the assurance that the end will come certainly and Suddenly. The breaking of this seal precipitates an earthquake of unparalleled magnitude. Now, we've got a recent uh, understanding of earthquake and what they can do. We've all seen the devastation in Haiti and the destruction and the loss of life, and it's been huge. And this passage says that's nothing. This earthquake of unparalleled magnitude reaching up into the heavens blackening the sun, bloodying the moon, shaking the stars loose to fall to earth like figs in the wind, ripping the sky open like a rolled scroll, and then returning to earth to toss about mountains and islands. Now the theological significance of earthquakes, again, is rooted in the Old Testament. We find them mentioned in Genesis, Exodus, Judges, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Micah, and Nahum, and the Psalms. Joel chapter 2, which Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost, says, The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Isaiah chapter 34, the great prophet Isaiah, has many messianic prophecies of Jesus, says, All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. And then Ezekiel chapter 38. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. One commentator wrote, What sinners dread most is not death, but the revealed presence of God. But notice, too, that the Lamb that was slain is now the judge of all the earth, and the one whose wrath terrifies the unbelieving world. And with the opening of the sixth seal, John beheld a phenomenon which in the apocalyptic language of the Bible is the usual way of describing the end of the world. The breaking of the sixth seal brings us to the threshold of the opening of the scroll, which is to say the end of history. And the letters to the seven churches that we read in chapters 2 and 3 indicate, indicate that Revelation was written to address the actual situation being faced by the church. Christian people and the church in those days and to be faced by them in the coming days. And we also noticed when we went through those letters that the situation described in those letters is very much like the situation that we face ourselves in our own day. And in taking this description of the world and of human history to ourselves, we don't want to get caught up too much in the details. has often been a mistake of readers and interpreters of Revelation One commentator said, Reviewing the various interpretations assigned to the four horsemen tends to rob the reader of the dramatic nature of the vision itself. It's good to place oneself back in one of the seven churches and listen to the visions as they are being read. Instead of discussing the probable significance of each of the horses, these first listeners would have recoiled in terror as war, bloodshed, famine, and death galloped furiously across the stage of their imagination. You have to use your imagination to understand Revelation. And all that is good to know. And we get through all these strange things, and it's hard to understand. So we have to ask the question, what does all this mean? What does all this mean? I mean, the Christians who received this letter and heard this vision already knew that Jesus Christ sat on the heavenly throne, that he's the king. They knew with certainty that he ruled over kings of the earth, as we read in Revelation 1. But if so, why has the world's history continued to unfold as it was, like much of history had run for ages? And after Pentecost, a great start had been made. The church was springing up all over the place. People are becoming Christians in growing numbers, and that hasn't let up. But think of what else happened during their time, the time of the seven churches. The Roman world had been literally shaken by great earthquakes in A.D. sixty, which destroyed cities, took many lives. The Roman army had been humiliated in battle by the Parthians, who were archers and used bows. In A.D. 62. Great persecution of Christians followed the terrible fire in Rome in A.D. 64. The four-year horror of the Jewish war ended in A.D. 70 with Jerusalem in ruins. The Emperor Nero committed suicide in A.D. 68 and chaos and civil war ensued as four different men battled to lay claim to the throne. And for a year, the Roman world echoed to the tramp of armies on the march. In A.D. 79 came the eruption of Mount Vesuvius which obliterated all the resorts on the Bay of Naples and spread such a a cloud of darkness over the Mediterranean world that people actually spoke of this event as the harbinger of the end of the world. And through these years, there were several great famines that occurred, culminating in a great famine in A.D. 92, just a few years before Revelation was written. And this is the world in which the Christians of the seven churches lived. They had seen all this stuff up close and personal. This is what was happening in the world. Catastrophes of various kinds threatened people everywhere. The specter of martyrdom uh, loomed before the church. Hundreds and thousands had already died for their loyalty to Christ. Thousands more were at risk in a society that is deeply offended by the Christian faith and worried by its spectacular growth. And John's vision is meant to assert the sovereignty of Jesus Christ over such a world as that and over such a history as that. And of course, everything we read in Revelation 6, we've experienced in our own time on a greater scale. There were never were wars as great and as vast as the wars of the modern world. We called two of them world wars. And there have been wars waged virtually everywhere in the world throughout the modern period of human history. Someone wrote, and I couldn't find the article, I can't quote it exactly, it was about six years ago, how many countries were involved in conflict, either directly fighting or supplying? There was about 160 countries in the world. Seven were at peace. All the other countries were somehow involved in conflict, including our own. And, of course, we're in the middle of two wars now. Because who are the major arms dealers in the world? Five biggest arms dealers in the world? Five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council? That's true. We're all involved in conflict. And, of course, famine continues to perplex human life throughout history, and it continues to do so today. There's famine in different parts of the world. No matter our remarkable agricultural technology, the fact that enough food exists to feed everybody in the world, this morning there's people starving somewhere. And they're starving in many places because the famine was produced by drought or by political or economic chaos, or by military action. Famine follows war like two follows one. And despite our successes at some points, plagues and diseases still uh, take untold numbers of lives every year. Hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes and fires the four horsemen ride throughout our world today. And all over the world, there are Christians suffering and dying for the faith. The role of martyrs continues to grow. The number of souls under the altar expands virtually every day that passes. And yet the church continues to grow. There are more Christians alive today than at any time in history, and close to all, close to half of all Christians who have ever lived are alive right now. And John's point is that the evil that we see in the world, the tragedy, the suffering, the cruelty, the injustice, the failure of life to come and all its f- uh, fulfillment, all of that is God's doing. He is in absolute control. The four horse- horsemen are sent from heaven. They receive their power and their authority in heaven. They do their work in answer to a summons that was given them in heaven in obedience to the assignment they receive at the throne of God. The world is in the process of being saved, and that part of it that is not being saved stands under divine judgment. That's the point of this series of scenes, as one seal after another is broken. God is calling his people to himself. People are dying for the faith. The church is expanding, and yet judgment is being brought upon the unbelieving and the ungodly. And yet, in the midst of the judgment, the church herself suffers. She suffers in the same way that her Savior suffered. She suffers in the same way the world suffers. She suffers from war and famine and disease, suffers persecution from the enemies of Christ, And all of this and all of its darkness and difficulty is the will of God and comes from heaven because something is happening in the world that God sees fit to bring to pass. War, famine, disease, all the heartbreak of human life, including all of your heartbreak and trouble and sorrow and the persecution of the church and her struggles in a world of sin and hostility towards God and Christ, all of this is about what God is doing in the world in the interest of salvation and judgment. And it's all leading up to and preparing for the consummation of all things at the second coming of Christ. Every trial you undergo as a Christian, every difficulty that you face as a human being, it is in every case a point of this larger drama of salvation and judgment. Your life as a Christian, for that matter, every single life on the face of the earth is what it is because the Lamb of God is breaking the seals of the scroll one by one. And the souls beneath the altar bear witness to this. They're the casualties of a great war, and there'll be many others like them before that war has been finally and decisively brought to an end. But it will end in victory and vindication for the followers of Christ in one absolute certainty of human history. The Lamb himself the Son of God, is breaking the seals. And the the world hears the gospel being proclaimed and sees the multitudes come into Christ from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, declaring the praises of Jesus Christ. But it does not reckon with the fact that the Lamb who was slain is also the Lamb whose wrath is already bringing judgment upon the unbelieving and the ungodly, warning them of greater judgment to come. The world sees the war, the carnage, the famine, the disease, but it does not see the horsemen bringing it all from heaven. And as a result, it utterly misunderstands uh, the meaning of life and of history. The Christian knows that everything about his or her life takes its meaning from these larger cosmic revelation realities and from the end to which History is proceeding according to the plan, purpose, and victory of God. Everything, absolutely everything that happens in this world, good and bad, is finally significant only for the role it plays in fulfilling the divine purposes of judgment and salvation. That's the meaning of everything. Everything's getting better. The church is growing in untold ways, and everything's getting worse. The church is suffering in ways we can't even fathom. And wherever your life is now, and wherever you wish it to be, and wherever you want it to go, be sure that you're always first and foremost aware of the scroll and the seals that have been broken, the scroll so soon to be opened, and history so soon to be brought to an end. As Christians see societies crumble and collapse, our response should not be terrified, alarm as though our security is bound up in a fragile human network of law and order. But we should face these times with anticipation and confidence that the Lamb is now on the throne with God's plan for history firmly in his hand, and he will reign forever and ever. And he's coming back to bring salvation to his people and judgment to his enemies. After all, he's the king, and that's what a king does. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing Jesus to us. For those of us who need a new perspective on our world, on our life, on all those questions we can't answer, this side of heaven, enable us to really see. Help us to focus on Jesus. And use these visions of revelation to change us into people who trust you no matter the circumstances. In the name of your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.